Welcome to Behind the Screens. I'm Ryan Preventure from Mubio. And I'm Simon Burton from Numero. Matthew, you there? Nope. Nope. Matthew's still on leave. So he'll be back uh, next week to hopefully join us. But the good thing is, everyone, is that you're still going to get to hear Matthew's voice at the end of this. We have a great interview coming up at the very end that we'll talk about. So no fear. You're going to hear Matthew in just a little bit. But let's look at the box office for this weekend. Let's jump straight into it, Ryan. Uh, Insidious, The Red Door, was released by Sony Pictures this past weekend, opening to number one at the domestic box office with a weekend total of $33 million. Internationally, it commenced in 52 markets, taking another $31.4 million, bringing the worldwide opening weekend queue to $64.4 million. Looking internationally, that was led by Mexico, taking $5.8 million. Philippines, in a huge result, coming second internationally with $3.7 million weekend. Um, That's the largest horror opening of all time in the Philippines and also enormously the largest opening this year. Um, So a huge result in the Philippines. And in third position, the United Kingdom with $2.8 million. Ryan, before we jump into the other titles this weekend, do you want to share the audience that turned out for Insidious the Red Door? Yeah, I think we found out some interesting things. This was Bloomhouse's 16th number one opening, and it was Sony's second largest opening of a horror film right behind the grudge. So this was a great, great sort of uh, pull for everyone all around. When we looked at it, we compared Insidious to uh, The Boogeyman, and some of the movies in the comps were, were The Boogeyman, Evil Dead Rise, Annabelle Comes Home, The Pope's Exorcist, The Black Phone, the most recent Scream, Scream 6, The Nun, and It Chapter 2. As you'd imagine, all sort of horror films. The last Insidious movie came out a while back, so it didn't it didn't really make the similar movies comps here. But with that said, and looking at The Boogeyman, which came out on June 2nd, we could kind of see the, the same sort of behavior from the audience because uh, we are now both post-pandemic for this particular film. The infrequents were 35% compared to 32% for The Boogeyman. Occasionals were 33 to 32. The frequents were 26 for Insidious compared to 31 for The Boogeyman. And the very frequents were 5% compared to 6% for The Boogeyman. So really, the audience makeup and how they come to see this film are all almost exactly the same. What we did see was the age demographics were a little bit different. 18 to 24s were 25% for Insidious compared to 17 for The Boogeyman. 25 to 34 was 27%, quite a bit higher, compared to 18% for The Boogeyman. And 35 to 44 was 16% compared to 18%. What we did see, which was really interesting, was the audience breakdown for both films was 50-50, male-female. So you have a little bit of an idea that maybe this was really kind of a date film. And what we saw was Caucasians were 40% of the audience for Insidious, with Hispanics bringing in 38% compared to 27% for The Boogeyman. So a little bit more of a diverse audience with this particular one, but a real nice showing for, uh, for Sony here. One of the interesting things is this franchise has gone through a bunch of different distributors for it, so I'm sure Sony is very happy to have it back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, An incredible result. The other uh, new opener in the domestic market this past weekend, Sound of Freedom, coming in third place with a weekend of $19.7 million, opening on July 4th to $14 million, bringing its cum after six days in release to $40 million. Well, the audience for it would be really kind of how you'd expect. This is 
a religious thriller, I guess is what a lot of people are calling it. So a lot of religious films were com uh, compared to it, including Unplanned, Jesus Revolution, I Can Only Imagine, His Only Son, Overcomer, Paul, Apostle of Christ, Christmas with the Chosen, and, the Cho and one of the seasons of The Chosen. So really, uh, it does seem that the audience came out who, uh, who tend to see religious films. In frequency, it was compared to Unplanned, by the way, when we're looking at the benchmarks here. So infrequent moviegoers were 52% compared to 36% for Unplanned. Occasionals were 30% compared to 35%. 15% of the audience were for Sound of Freedom were frequent moviegoers compared to 26% for Unplanned. And very frequent was 3% and 3% for both. What we did see was that the audience was a little bit of an older crowd. 45 to 54 was 18% compared to 15% for unplanned. 55 to 64 was 28% for Sound of Freedom compared to 25% for unplanned. But the 65 plus was quite a bit of the audience, the most here. 32% for Sound of Freedom compared to 34% for unplanned. And the breakout was exactly the same. 54% female compared to 56% male. So certain a certain audience went and saw this film, but they brought in a big box office. Tuesday's gross was, for this particular film, was bigger than Indiana Jones. And that's saying something. Yeah, they did. It was phenomenal. Uh, before we move on to touching on the holdovers, there was another wide release in the domestic market this past weekend with Joyride on 2,800 screens, uh, taking a gross of $5.8 million. Well, the audience for this was sort of interesting. You would have imagined we'd see crazy rich Asians in here uh, due to the kind of audience in, in the movie it was, but the audience we found here was interesting. No Hard Feelings, The Blackening, The Flash, Renfield, Asteroid City, Hypnotic, Past Lives, which is still in somewhat limited release, and Transformers, the most recent one. Really kind of an interesting audience that went and saw Joyride. We decided to look at No Hard Feelings because that's really kind of the closest comedy compared to the rest of these. And what we found when we compared No Hard Feelings and Joyride, movies that came out very, very close to one another, were in frequency were 17% compared to 31% for No Hard Feelings. Occasionals for Joyride were 23% compared to 30% for No Hard Feelings. Frequents were 41% compared to 32, and very frequents were 19% for Joyride compared to 6%. So there was a pretty big difference in the very frequent. So people who really just come to movies went and came out and saw Joyride, which had great reviews. So a little surprising that the movie, which got a B minus cinema score, audiences just didn't feel the same way as they did for, um, for No Hard Feelings. And what we saw was the breakdown was pretty similar in that um, the it was tend to be middle range people with 25 to 34, 23% of the audience was saw Joyride compared to 14% for No Hard Feelings, 45 to 54 was 18 compared to 16%, and 55 to 64 was 16% compared to 17% for No Hard Feelings. What we did find was the audience was about the same, 46% for female and 54% male. As you can imagine, uh, the Asian audience did come out a little bit more for this one at 13% of the audience compared to 5% for No Hard Feelings. Would have imagined a little bit of a higher number there with the particular audience, but 50% of the audience was Caucasian compared to 66% for No Hard Feelings. 
Taking a look at the holdovers this past weekend, uh, we had Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny in its second week after an opening weekend in the domestic market of $60.4 million, saw a drop of 54% to $27.4 million. Uh, its opening worldwide weekend of $130 million, that QM is now at $248 million after taking another $32 million from 52 markets internationally this weekend for a combined drop of 49%. We've also got Elemental in week four, uh, coming fourth at the domestic market this past weekend, taking $10 million, only a drop of 17% from its week three results. Internationally, great result internationally, actually another $30 million from 48 markets. Last weekend, it took $30 million from 40 markets. Uh, so it only dropped 21% and increased in many major markets, including Australia and Korea. Interestingly, in Korea, this fourth weekend is its highest uh, weekend growth so far in that market. So it keeps increasing in, in Korea, which is terrific for the film Elemental with its now its worldwide cum at $252 million. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse filled fifth position at the domestic market, taking another $8 million, bringing its domestic cum to $357 million, surpassing Guardians of the Galaxy 3 this past weekend. Internationally, it's also taken $285 million for a worldwide QM for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse of $642 million. So we had some good numbers, some good holdovers, and looking forward to a, hopefully a big weekend coming up. But as I had mentioned earlier, we're all going to get to hear Matthew's voice now. Matthew and Simon both interview Stuart Dickinson, who is the new Vista Group CEO and has some interesting things to say about the company and the industry at large. Okay, Simon, so we've got a special guest today. Today we're joined by Stuart Dickinson, who joined Vista Group as CEO on the 11th of April, succeeding Kimball Riley, who retired after five years on the job. Stuart joins us uh, with 25 or more years of experience in the tech sector, most recently with DXC Technology. DXC assists major companies run their IT systems and operations, optimize their data architecture and IT suites, and help with security and scalability with specialty in cloud. So with almost three months on the roll there, we thought it was a good time to sit down with Stuart and have a bit of a chat. Welcome to the podcast, Stuart. Thanks, Matt and um, Simon, and very happy to be here. I've been a big fan of Behind the Screens since I first heard about it and um, really look forward to your updates each week. So, oh, appreciate um, happy, that. Happy to be here. Thank you. Hey, look, let me kick off and Simon and I'll pass the baton back and forward a little bit. What were you doing with DXC before you joined Vista? So I think you adequately or really well describe what DXC does. Mm. Um, my role specifically was in the enterprise application space, so uh, focused around technologies such as SAP, uh, Salesforce, Microsoft Dynamics, um, ServiceNow, et cetera. And so I was responsible uh, for leading those practices for DXC across Asia Pacific. And when you look at what you've done with them for almost a quarter of a century, uh, what is it in terms of experience and knowledge that you're bringing from DXC to Vista Group, but also the film industry? So um, I think for all clients today, if, if you look at where they've been from a technology perspective, uh, traditionally they implemented enterprise systems, whether or not it was in, in cinema, around point of sale, etc. 
the opportunity now is to use those systems to digitize their organization, to actually improve customer satisfaction, to help really drive out operational cost and efficient and become more efficient, to leverage some of the great advances we're having with uh, products like uh, artificial intelligence, etc. And so regardless of industry, I think all organizations are trying to do that. And so uh, I had the opportunity to work across public sector um, organizations, so large government entities through to commercial um, and, and small private entities. And all of them might present as slightly different challenges and things that they were trying to do, um, but uh, same outcomes they're looking forward and for in terms of customer satisfaction and improvement, operational efficiency. And certainly what I've seen so far in terms of the cinema and film industry it's the same conversations with um, particularly our exhibition clients mm -hmm. who are coming out of COVID. They're very much looking to move from uh, thinking about our technology that we support them with. Traditionally, they've thought about it probably as transactional or operational technology, but now thinking about it as, well, how do they build loyalty? How do they operate subscription programs? How can they differentiate? How can they reduce labor costs? How can they be more innovative and effective? And so. Um, cloud technology, connected technology, I think is how those things all, all all come to life. Yeah, and who's doing it well? So when you look around the world, either a sector or if you can call that specific companies, because we're often asked um, within our industry, who over the fence is doing something to inspire exhibitors and studios? I think um, a number of organisations, particularly some of the um, businesses and consumer and retail who have gone down this track and on this journey, uh, probably uh, probably slightly earlier, even some of the um, manufacturing and distribution organisations, they've spent a lot of time becoming more operationally efficient, lever leveraging technology, um, whether or not it's in terms of how do they automate process, um, how do they t um, reduce labour, um, and particularly labour in terms of repetitive tasks. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and distribution, et cetera, there's a lot of order entry, there's a lot of data capture, that data capture is then sent through um, a value chain. If you can use technology to automate that, um, very much like what we think about from a cinema and film perspective, how do you, rather than reprocessing this data, how do you actually connect that up and how do you make sure that it's available for the right um, users at the right time? So I think many industries, uh, are relevant even if you come to public sector. Public sector today is, is obsessed about digitization and providing better citizen services. Mm -hmm. Now each market, um, whether or not it's in the US, uh, Europe or an APAC is doing that slightly differently, but they're all trying to do it the same in terms of getting closer to their citizens, providing more electronic and more digital services for them to interact directly with government. And so they've got to unlock their core central systems, their transaction engines, and create that digital layer on top, mm -hmm. very similar to what it is that we're doing um, for our clients. So Stu, you've been with us for just about three months now, and you, your commencement, your timing was impeccable, really, a couple of weeks before CinemaCon, then you backed it up with Cine Europe. Um, having attended both of those two trade shows, what are your first impressions of the wonderful industry we work in? Well, I was going to say, I think it's a pretty special industry. And um, uh, I went to CinemaCon probably not knowing what to expect, but a lot of people had, had built it up as a big, big event with um, a lot of 
conversations, um, a, lot, a lot of content. And what I guess I found was it's a pretty special industry. There's lots of really interesting characters in the industry. There's a lot of people that have been there for a long time. And um, some of them were certainly wearing their badges with pride in terms of this is the number of cinema cons or cine Europe's I've, I've been and attended. And, and so it's kind of like a family. And, and we hosted in cine Europe uh, a couple of weeks ago the Vista Group party. And really that was a great social gathering for the industry to come together. And for many, it was like connecting with lost friends or people they hadn't seen for the last 12 months, uh, brought back brought back together. And, um, and so I've absolutely been, I guess, excited by the level of family. I have felt very well welcomed into that family, which has been great. I think the other thing, I was a pretty avid moviegoer, but I'm not sure I really understood the passion and the depth of excitement around a movie, a great story on a big screen and the dark and what all of those things connect together to create. And uh, that that was really exciting from, from my perspective to see how, how that all came together. I think the other thing that's interesting in, in this particular industry is the relationship between the studios, the distributors, and also um, the exhibitors. And so it's quite unique from that perspective in terms of both studios and distributors and also exhibitors. They both need each other to be successful, um, but they're also from different different worlds in mm. many cases uh, as well. And so um, that was something that I, I kind of, I think I intellectually understood that, but I hadn't really seen that play out in, um, in action. And so... Both CinemaCon and Cine Europe were very, very good for that. And certainly the timing was great. It's, it's meant that I've managed to see a whole heap of our customers, our clients, um, meet a number of industry participants as well and, and get around our team. So the timing has been fantastic. So, Stu, you've talked about what you've learned so far from the industry, and it mm-hmm. sounds pretty spot on for a couple of guys who've been here a little longer, um, and also what you're able to bring from the broader world and your broader experience. As you put them together, what do you see the greatest opportunities are for Vista when we want to serve the industry and, and help them in their journey? Yeah, so I think our role is is very much around, and, and I've met with a number of our client CEOs over the last period, and I, I think what has happened is that prior to sort of 2019, particularly in the Vista cinema space, a number of our clients thought about our technology very operationally. It was a point-of-sale system, it was a ticketing system, etc., but the opportunity now for us is as they start to really think about their customers, the moviegoer, how do they build more relationships with them, how do they differentiate, etc. our technology becomes really strategic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our role as a partner to them to enable that and some of the uh, apps that we're starting to think about as an organisation and then taking that data, making that data available to um the studios, the distributors as part of those relationships, I think we start to really create a connected industry. And so that, for me, is the greatest opportunity we've got as as Vista Group. Mm. Yeah, we certainly look forward to delivering that to our customers. Stu, I wanted to get your impressions of one of the biggest tech buzzwords of 2023. Uh, And you touched on it at the start of this interview, generative AI. Do you think it lives up to the hype? And if so, how do you see Vista Group harnessing it? I think um, look, generative AI has certainly taken the world by storm and, and you don't have to go 24 hours 
um, at the moment without something happening in, in the generative AI space. If you, if you take a step back and think about artificial intelligence and AI in general, from a Vista Group perspective, we've used AI in a number of our products over the years as part of machine learning models or as to support delivery uh, of, of our products. Uh, generative AI is kind of the next step. Uh, using large language models. And I think there are some really interesting opportunities uh, in our market for our products. But the key is going to be around how we do that in a thoughtful way, how we do it with um, the right ethical boundaries, how we create the right framework for uh, our organisation. And so we've started to think a lot about that uh, as a leadership group to make sure that we're very clear and also as the board uh, very clear around from a Vista Group perspective, how would we use generative AI? Uh, we have a lot of data that we're the custodians of on behalf of our clients. We need to make sure that that is, remains secure uh, and safe. We certainly can't have that um, sitting in, in, in broad, large language models, etc. And so um, thoughtful curiosity is the way I would describe it. And is that both internal applications as well as more client-facing? or All of the above. Yeah. All of the above. And, and I think that there is no question that um, internally there is huge opportunities for us, particularly in customer support or client support in terms of how we better support our clients, deliver knowledge, not not in terms of necessarily writing the knowledge, but making, surfacing that knowledge for our clients so that they can uh, use our tools and our, and our business technology uh, better. So Stu, looking forward 12 months from now, what achievements can we hope to see with the Vista Group? So Simon, I think one of the things that I was really excited about when I went to CinemaCon was we launched an app called Vista One View. Um, we teased it um, and then we launched it to, uh, to the exhibitors. And, and I talk about this as a synthetic application because it brings together data from a number of different data sources in our business, surfaces them to a sea level, um, so that they can understand what is going on uh, as an exhibitor, what is going on in, uh, in their movie theatres, what is going on with food and beverage, what is going on in terms of the sales, and make that available on a single application. So it's, it brings all of those data sources together. It becomes something that's very actionable that they can then use to uh, talk to their teams in the field. So rather than having to make a whole lot of phone calls to find out what was going on, they can see what was going on and then they can uh, move on from that. That to me, to me is a really good example of where Vista Group can really add value to our clients. It's where we bring all of our expertise together in terms of the industry, but also the data that we have access to, uh, present that back, uh, not operationally, but actually in terms of rich uh, insights that are actionable um, and so I see a huge opportunity for us to do more of that um, across the organisation to become even more relevant to our clients as they go on their digital transformation journeys. And so we'll start to we'll continue to accelerate that. I'm excited for February next year when we will host uh, the Vista Group Conference. That'll be the first time we've done that since 2019. Uh, it'll be great to bring both our exhibition, but also our studio and distribution clients together in Auckland uh, to talk about where the industry's at, uh, how we're using and building our technology to support them to be successful as well. And so I think there's a number of um, really exciting things that are happening in the market, um, certainly from a technology acceleration perspective as we continue to 
support our cinema clients to move to cloud, that unlocks a whole lot of innovation opportunities uh, for them as well. So uh, it's going to be a very busy 12 months. Stu, we know we've taken up a lot of your time, but as you know, I came through Movio and we have a long-standing tradition for new starters <laughs> there where we ask a couple of questions. Sure. And I'd like to ask them of you. Yeah. The first one is, what's something about you that we wouldn't know from looking at your CV or LinkedIn profile? Uh, so you wouldn't know that I've got three kids. Uh, so a 16-year-old daughter and uh, Angus and Gemma, who are twins, who are 13. And so our family is a really big part of my life. And my wife's name is Jessie. And um, so you wouldn't know that from my, my um, CV, but certainly when I'm not working, spending time with them, uh, chasing them around is uh, something I'm very passionate about. Well, this last question might be linked to that, but what's your favourite movie or your favourite cinema experience? I, I'm always a sucker for an action movie. Um, also, uh, also like something that pulls a little bit of heartstrings. And um, so recently uh, sat in a theatre with my wife and watched Air, which was just mm -hmm. fantastic really looking forward to uh, Mission Impossible um, over the next few weeks. Um, I was in the back of a, of a theatre in, in Paris last week and, and um, saw, saw a couple of seconds of um, Indiana Jones and that looks pretty exciting uh, as well. And, and so there's a, some really great stories. Um, I also on the plane uh, back the other day uh, watched a movie called Challenges, mm -hmm. uh, which is just a fantastic feel-good story. And it's, it's stories like that made for the big screen, um, just, yeah, really special. I love some Farrelly's and um, Picking Air, it's my favourite film of the year so far, so you get a tick at least from <laughs> me there. Berto, you love your basketball, eh? I do. Yeah, I do. Stu, thanks very much for that. Uh, we look forward to working with you to, to pursue Vista's aims over the next year and checking in uh, at regular intervals to see how we're all going uh, and how we're progressing to help the industry. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks, Simon. And uh, thanks to everybody in the industry who's listening to this, uh, the welcome they've given me, uh, our team at Vista Group and, and the solutions we're delivering for our clients. I'm super excited to be here and looking forward to uh, continuing to check in. So thank you. Well, that was a great in interview there. Thank you, Simon. And Matthew is on vacation. Thank you for doing that. We've got a great episode coming up next week where we'll be talking about the hopefully huge big blockbuster, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, which opens this weekend. Looking forward to seeing another Tom Cruise movie. And then we've got the Battle of Oppenheimer and Barbie in the weeks to come. So we have a lot of great stuff we'll be analyzing here on Behind the Screens. Movio and Numero are two of the businesses within the Vista Group, the world-leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry. For more moviegoer insights, be sure to visit movio.co and follow Movio, Numero, and Vista Group on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Behind the Screens podcast is produced by Grace Furness and edited by Patrick Hanna.